0: It's so good to be with you this morning and to celebrate this week as the great philosopher, the artist formerly known as Prince said, here in Atlanta, we are partying like it's 1999, right? The other thing that we know from the old English proverb is that cheaters never prosper. So while God may not have favorites, we know who's supposed to win this series coming up in the World Series. Can I have an amen? And I say that where my hometown, my birth town is Houston, Texas. But I am all in and we're excited about what the next week or so entails. It was in this very room where I made a move that was one of the fastest moves I've ever made. You might recall that during uh, the pre-pandemic period that one of our great traditions here at Peachtree of one of our Christmas traditions was that we would have a pageant in this room and we would decorate the front of the room to express the nativity, the children, the choirs, the animals and the pinnacle of the moment is when the back doors of the church open and that camel comes walking into the church. And not only the little children, but everybody oohs and awes at the strangeness of this majestic creature that walks through the sanctuary, comes down the aisle, turns over here, and becomes very close to that very chair in which I sit. You can smell the camel. <laughs> I'm so close, you can feel the camel's breath. And in my second year of being with you, that camel was agitated. That camel was upset. And all of a sudden, that camel started to kick. And I moved as fast as I have ever moved away from that camel. I ran. The staff was teasing me and saying, we've never seen you move so quickly. Do you have an unhealthy fear of camels? And I said, no, I don't have an unhealthy fear of camels. I have an unhealthy fear of this thing called YouTube. Oh, yeah. Just want you to imagine for a moment that with all the cameras in this room, in addition to the ones that people have in their pockets and are holding out in that moment, imagine if you are the pastor that gets kicked by an agitated camel at your own Christmas pageant. You're never living that moment down. Every year, there's a trigger called Christmas, and everybody's like, let's watch the video of that pastor who got kicked by a camel. That's what I was afraid of. I was afraid that my defining moment in life was going to be the pastor who got kicked by the camel. Fortunately, because of my amazing ninja skills and my six senses, I did not get kicked by that camel, and I got out of the way. And that's a silly example of... A defining moment that I was able to avoid. Can you think of some of the defining moments in your life that either happened or didn't happen? The one I shared with you was a silly one. I was just at my 25th college reunion this last weekend and from college and we were reminiscing about all the things that happened that didn't happen and one of the things that happened to one of my best friends from college is that he and I were both business majors and then he went into the field of accounting and he moved to Houston and he went to work for a company called Arthur Anderson, one of the most prestigious firms at the time. His boss walked in one day and said, I'm going to put you, this is Houston, not a surprise on an energy client, I'm either going to put you on Dynegy or I'm going to put you on the hot company that everybody wants to be on, a little company called Enron. Imagine how different his life would have been had his boss put him on Enron and not the other company? Do you think that he ever would have gotten into Harvard Business School? Do you think that he would ever gotten to have worked for eBay and Microsoft and Deloitte and other great companies? That was a defining moment. When you look back over your life, I imagine you can kind of comb through the history of your own journey and think, man, here was that significant turning point. I was headed this way, and now I'm headed that way. And what we're about to discover in this series called Defining Moments is that there are some predictable patterns and some lessons that need to be learned. And we're going to look at a very strange kind of portion of the Bible that's often overlooked, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Esther, and Malachi. When was the last time you did a devotional in Malachi or Haggai? It's probably been a long time. And we're going to see some of these defining moments, the rebuilding of the wall, the renewing of the promise, the reassembling of church, the recognizing of a call, and the remembering of the truth. And we're going to discover today a particular quality in defining moments and the thing that I want us to notice today is that defining moments are less actually about one particular moment but actually the cumulative effect of a lot of little moments that make up a defining moment. Let me share with you one of those little moments that made up a big moment. I was very close with my mother's father, my grandfather. And when I was in college, I made the decision that I was going to graduate and to go straight into seminary. My grandfather was very involved in church and in a particular ministry that was all about making sure that poor communities in Mexico had sustainable and clean drinking water. And so he took me on a trip with a group of adults. I had never been on an international out of the country mission trip before. I had never done anything except for something in student ministry before. And on this trip, my grandfather insisted that I lead every devotion. I had never taken a Bible class. I was only 21 years old. These were adults who had been studying the Bible and had been on multiple trips before. Who was I to offer any wisdom or perspective to them? And so my grandfather assigned me a portion of the Bible, and he pushed me into the deep end of the pool saying, you're going to do this twice a day in the morning and the evening for us as a group. The portion of the Bible that he assigned to me was something maybe the name I had heard of before, but honestly had never read. It was the book of Nehemiah. And he said, you're going to cover the first eight chapters in the four or five days that we were on this trip. And there was a word, there was a phrase in as I read that portion of the Bible that just stuck out to me. Talked about Nehemiah stepping out of faith and saying that the rebuilding of the wall was known as this good work. And that one of the great invitations that you and I have in life is to participate in this good work. So we're going to do something a little strange today it's a little old school i'm going to ask for you to reach the bible it's from the pew rack in front of you or the one that you've brought with you today i'm going to ask you to open up to the book of nehemiah in the library of the old testament there's the first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy then you have joshua judges and ruth first and second samuel first and second king first and second chronicles ezra and then nehemiah And so you're looking at about the first third of the Old Testament there. This is kind of towards the culmination of some of the history. And it happens in a significant way that in 597, Israel falls to the empire of Babylon. And that about 60 years after that, the Babylonian Empire takes over the is by taken over by the Persian Empire. And the Israelites are still scattered all over the place but about 150 years or so after the Babylonians had ripped apart the community of Israel, they started to get to go back and yet their lives were in shambles. I'm about to break every preaching rule in the book that my professors told us never to do. We're gonna walk through seven chapters of the Bible in less than 15 minutes. But there's only one way to see all of the little moments that make up the big moment. For you see, it's really easy to just say, hey, Nehemiah's defining moment was the rebuilding of the wall. Which, of course, it is. But that didn't just happen overnight. It was a process. And so let's start reading Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in the first verse. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates have been burned with fire, and when I heard these things, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let's pause right there. Nehemiah asks a question, he gets an answer, and the first thing that you'll notice is that he experiences a broken heart. Almost any good defining moment of transformation in the world will begin when your heart breaks at the things that break the heart of God. And that's where this story begins. And Nehemiah's response, if you'll look down to what happens after his heart breaks, is the question is, what is he going to do with that broken heart? He is someone who is in the high government level of the Persian Empire. He is in charge of food and beverage industry for the king. And what he does in that moment is that he begins to pray. And you actually see recorded there, you can see probably in the indentation of your Bible, the length of that prayer, and he prays out of trust to God. And in hopes of God making good on his promises, it has been over 150 years since they've been in exile. And he is still begging God to make good on that promise. And so your heart begins to break, but then that broken heart takes it into that deep prayer. And then what happens next if you look at chapter 2, if you look at chapter 2, Nehemiah has the courage to go before the king to ask for something to be done. The text is very specific that Nehemiah has never been sad in the king's presence before, and that the king notices this, and that Nehemiah is nervous as he is about to ask the king for what he's going to ask, which is a leave of absence from the food and beverage industry in order for him to be able to go back to his home country. He's nervous because kings in the ancient world and these empires were known to be quite whimsical and could have seen this as a moment of disloyalty, and it could have been the end of Nehemiah. And yet he asks. And he not only asks in order for him to be able to have the time away, the vacation if you will, he asks for letters of recommendation, and he asks for basically not only safe passage, but also for being able to marshal the resources to be able to do something about this problem. And the king grants his request, and Nehemiah travels back to the city of Jerusalem And when he gets there, at the end of chapter 2, he goes on a nighttime journey of exploring the real condition of the city. Which, in other words, even though Nehemiah is a wealthy and influential person, he comes in and he gets close to the problem. He goes and he searches the walls and he looks at the disarray. And so he gets close in chapter two. He does not stay at an arm's length. Nehemiah does not get sad and write a check to the Jerusalem Restoration Fund. He gets really close. And then as you'll notice, in chapter three, what happens is that he begins to pull together all of these different people. Look at all these different names and all of these different gates. You have, like, the fish gate and the Jeshanna gate, and my personal favorite and every junior high boy's favorite, the dung gate. All of these different gates and all of these different names. In other words, what Nehemiah does as a great leader is that he involves others. And so, if there's going to be a good work, if there's going to be a change, if there's going to be a defining moment, not just for you, but for society and for community as a whole, you've got to be somebody who mobilizes the work of others. And then by the time you get to chapter 4, what you discover is that there are communities and individuals and leaders in the region that don't like what Nehemiah is doing. And so if you look at chapter 4, you'll discover that there's a great deal of opposition to this, that the city has been vulnerable and people could come in and sack the city and steal what they needed to. And there were plenty of people who didn't like it. And I love the image of what is set up here is is that in Nehemiah, they learned how to dig with a shovel in one hand and to hold a spear in the other. If there is anything worth doing, it is likely going to be met with opposition. And one of the things that saddens me as a pastor is that there's a lot of false theology of least resistance out there that as soon as something gets hard, you think it must not be God's will. If you're reading this book, every good work that happens in this book on the whole required overcoming some opposition. And in chapter five, as Nehemiah starts to dig into the community more, as they are building, he discovers that people are using and abusing the poor through unfair lending practices. And so if you look down at chapter five, there's a whole chapter there dedicated to Nehemiah helping to root out the injustice of the way that the poor are being manipulated. And let me pause right there to say, one of the false dichotomies in our society, if we are going to have a biblical mindset, is that according to the book of Nehemiah, these two things go together. Helping the poor and having good security. In other words, it is not that just one political side of the spectrum is right, There are things that need to be learned about both of the desires and the holiness of we do need to help out the poor. And sometimes helping out the poor means rooting out a system that needs to be changed. And at the same time, there is no prosperity and there is no flourishing without good security. And we see in the book of Nehemiah that these two things go hand in hand. They're not separate from one another. And so after helping the poor, you see in chapter seven, because in chapter six, there's some more opposition that he has to overcome. And in chapter seven, I love this. I want to read this for you here. Look at all of these names. I'm not going to read all of these names to you. Do you think that Nehemiah, as you look at this list and all of the numbers of the people who, of the men who came into Israel there, because in censuses they used to only, typically only counted the men, Do you think that Nehemiah had an attention to detail? Do you think that Nehemiah liked Excel spreadsheets? But look at starting in verse 66, the whole company numbered 42,360. Besides the 7,337 male and female slaves, they also had 245 male and female singers. How about that for a choir? That's what I'm talking about, said Mary. That's a big choir. And in addition to that, there were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. And some of the heads of the family contributed to their work, and the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 units of gold, 50 bulls, and 530 garments for priests. Some of you should send me a tie in the mail based on this text. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work of more gold and more minas of silver. And the total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, 67 garments for the priests. And the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the musicians and the temple servants and along with the certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites. What did they do? They settled into their own towns. They built the wall, and then after building the wall, they brought their best, and they created a community in which they could flourish. Do you see how Nehemiah's moment, the one thing that we might know about Nehemiah is that he came into Jerusalem and he rebuilt the wall, but that Nehemiah's defining moment was actually a series of lots of little moments. Imagine if Nehemiah's heart hadn't broken. Imagine if he hadn't prayed. Imagine if he hadn't asked and had that courage. Imagine if he if he hadn't decided to draw close to the problem. Imagine if he didn't know how to involve others, or if if he if he withered in the face of opposition, or imagine if Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, but didn't give a darn about the poor, about society. Imagine if Nehemiah had not created a culture of generosity where he, as the governor, started first, and they all brought their best. And because of that, the city flourished, and they settled down. any good work worth doing can be broken down into little steps like this. And I think if you look back at the defining moments and the accomplishments of your life, you'll see that in reality it wasn't just one big moment, it was lots and lots and lots of little moments. But those little moments led up to a big one. Earlier this summer, Our oldest daughter, Danica, and I were in Boston on a trip, and while we were in downtown Boston, we went to this place that I want to show you. It's… I love old bookstores, and this is known as the Brattle Bookshop. And not only is it a great bookstore with, like, three stories of old books that just smell musty and fantastic. There's also this alley that, if the weather is good, they roll out all of these carts that you can see, and um, you can wander into the book section outside on a beautiful day. And so Danica was wandering into her own section, and I was looking in the religion section, guilty as charged, when I discovered this little book. It's called Access to God. This book set me back $2, but when I opened it up, I was surprised on the inside that the book is from 1843. It's written by a guy by the name of John Foster, and what the screen can't do close up as an image, hopefully you can now see when I hold it up for you, look at how tiny this book is. And I asked myself, I don't know who this John Foster is. And so I looked him up, and then I started reading. And there I am in the alley of a bookstore shop in Boston, and tears are running down my cheeks, and Danica's looking at me and saying, oh, great, this is going to be a sermon illustration. (laughs) Who wrote little books like this? John Foster grew up, he was born in 1770, and he grew up the son of a weaver and felt a call at a young age, at 17 years old, to become a pastor. He loved to preach. He was probably just okay at it. They said he was a beautiful writer, but his sermons weren't all that dynamic. And then there came this point as he was preaching that he experienced a series of disappointments. It took him a long time to get married, married later in life. It took him a while to have a kid. Eventually, he had to watch both his wife and his son die. But one of the greatest challenges that John faced was right in the heart of his career, and he loved nothing more than being a pastor and a preacher. He developed a thyroid condition where he could no longer speak publicly. Remember, this is the days before any kind of form of electric amplification. And so he could no longer do his job. And so what did he do? He pivoted. And he started writing little sermonette booklets, like this one, that would get published. So that somebody could read a sermon and digest it, and it was small enough just to slip into your pocket and take with you wherever you went. He published over 200 of these type of essay, sermon, little books. And what would have been maybe a small, obscure preacher turned into someone who helped to influence the revival, not only on that side of the pond, but this side of the pond. It could have been that his defining moment was that he had to give up his career and his disappointment, and that he just went back to weaving. But that's not what he did. He allowed that little moment to influence what would be his ultimate contribution of becoming a writer for the kingdom of God. I don't know what your Nehemiah moment is, What I do know is this, there's a lot of little moments that make up that big moment, and if you're faithful, God can bless even the disappointment, and so let's pray. Thank you, God, for your providence in the midst of our lives, of what we do in work and in life, in health and in love, and how those little things can come together to culminate into what might be our ultimate contribution in this world. Lord, help us to see not just the big moments, but the little ones. And help us to be faithful in the little things of overcoming opposition and praying through and having our hearts broken and helping others. And enable us, God, to be able to put together a lot of these little moments in order to be able to do what you're calling us to rebuild in our moment in time. And so we thank you. We thank you that you are the type of God that knows how to redeem not only the big things, but the little. And may we discover your glory in the midst of the small steps. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people's name.